Many veterinarians and veterinary technicians have been fighting against declawing around the country and around the world for the past several years. This week, we have a special guest, an animal health technician from Canada, who's had quite the success in banning these types of procedures. But more importantly, we're going to talk about the ways and strategies that you can use to implement whatever thing you're trying to advocate for. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And we're no stranger to the anti-declaw movement here on The Viewfinder. In fact, we've had several guests over the past five and a half years or so just doing that. So we've had great success in certain states in the United States, but nobody's been more successful perhaps than our guest today. And this is an animal health technician who really took it upon herself to make a change in her world. So before we get into that really interesting conversation, because viewfinders, this is going to be one of those how-tos no matter what you're trying to change in your world. As always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And Becky, I am super excited to share with the viewfinders our guest today because this is a great example of a veterinary professional who said, I don't like something in my profession, and they just went out and changed it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we all have the potential, but a lot of times we don't know where to start. And this uh, this self-starter reached out to us and said, hey, I did a really cool thing, and I think we should talk about it. And so that's why we're here. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so viewfinders, I'm really pleased to welcome today to our show, Alexandra Yaksic, and she goes by Alex. She's an animal health technician based all the way in Canada, in that funny part of the world where I think it's Quebec, where they speak French and English, and it's very confusing to me. Alex, welcome (laughs) to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Alex, just real quickly, you know, give us that elevator pitch of who you are, because I think, you know, you've got an incredible backstory, but I mean, I want the highlight versions because I think that there's so much more to what animal health technicians, veterinary technicians can do, and you're a great example. So just give us that. Who are you? Yeah. So over the last two years, uh, pretty much since COVID hit, I started doing relief work. Um, So I go to various hospitals around my city. Um, And I also started uh, freelance writing and started to dabble in journalism over the last two years or so. So what drew you to the topic of declawing? I mean, I know there's more, you you actually accomplished more than just anti-declawing in Quebec province, but what initially attracted you to take on this this type of issue? So it was interesting. Um, During the pandemic, uh, many of us have experienced the overflow of uh, just sheer volume of clients. And I saw way more cats coming in that were declawed. Uh, Sometimes they were just three months old. Um, I'd never experienced seeing that many before. And I was also seeing a lot of our clients ask about it. And I wasn't sure if this was because people were adopting more animals or because of my exposure to different hospitals. Um, Prior to my locum career, I was working mainly in one or two clinics. And we never did them there. So um, I I couldn't really tell where exactly it was coming from, but I knew that it was a problem. Okay, so what made it a problem? I mean, obviously, you know, we're in agreement with you on this topic, but like, were you seeing complications, behavioral issues, physiological, physical? I mean, so what about it? Like, other than just the idea of it? Oh, yeah. So, and this is a kind of a, a multimodal problem because... Not only were we seeing complications, um, so I mean like regrowth of the bone, um, really awful behavioral issues, 
animals being given up for behavioral issues associated with declawing. Um, But there was one case that really struck me, and it was a young couple, probably in their early 20s, who were doing all of the things that veterinary professionals tell them to do. They went to adopt a, a cat from a shelter, and they were coming in to, you know, have a health exam and do vaccines and get all the information from professionals. And the cat had been declawed. And, you know, when I'm in clinic, uh, now everybody gets a paw exam. <laughs> we don't leave right. those out. <laughs> uh, and so they had, uh, this cat had horrible regrowth uh, of the bone of the P3 fragment, and it was growing through the paw pad. So the cat wasn't walking well. And we, we were talking to the clients and we said, listen, like if, you know, best case, this cat would need corrective surgery. But that means you're going to have to go see the surgical specialist and that's going to cost you at least a few thousand dollars. And the looks on their faces, I mean, you know, it's a young couple and, you know, they they don't have any money and they're like, okay, well, Jesus, like now we're going to have to save up for this. Um, And it was really heartbreaking to me because they're now paying the price of our mistake, but we're supposed to be, you know, medical professionals. We're supposed to be advocating for these guys and, uh, on top of that, I, I thought, you know, how much damage is this doing to our reputation as an industry? Uh, we already get enough flack from clients thinking we're only in it for the money. And then you see a case like this and you're like, well, I can maybe understand why they might think that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you saw these personal cases popping up, you know, in your clinics or whatever, but, but you took the big bold step, right? I mean, so what then gave you, <laughs> emboldened you <laughs> to say, you know what? Well, I'm going to just ban it in Quebec. Like, <laughs> How did you go from seeing a few cases and complaining about him and, and being concerned and, and heartbroken to actually saying, I'm going to change the law? <laughs> so, um, you know, again, we it's so common that we talk about compassion fatigue and moral distress in our careers. And I just thought, you know, this, this is something that we're doing that's causing me to go home and you know, ruminate about these cases. And I, uh, I do have a lot of moral dis- distress over it. And I thought, you know, from a philosophical point of view, if I see something like this that I know is bad and I don't do anything about it, am I not responsible for the consequences? And so I really took it to heart and I really took it on as a personal responsibility to do everything in my power to create change and to make things better. Too often I hear people, you know, complain about things, but we're so less likely to act. Most of the time, I think it's because we just don't know what to do. Um, but I said, you know what, if I can do one thing, let me dedicate, let me dedicate all of my free time to this and just see, see what I can do. Let's, let's see what I can uh, accomplish with this. Alex, I love hearing this. Becky is, I hear her imploring to vet techs all the time. (laughs) I do the same with vets. We're like going, if you want something changed, start working toward it. I mean, Becky, this is a classic example. Someone who, who maybe would feel helpless, right? I don't know what to do or where to begin. You have to begin somewhere. I mean, Becky, I mean, I know you just have to be beaming as you're hearing Alex speak. Yeah, well, I mean, like in general, and I understand it's not everybody's thing, right? right? Like right, not right. everyone has that that mentality or that uh, it thrives in those situations. But I think there's so many of us that do and don't know how um, or or feel like we'll be heard. Like we're one voice. Can we make a difference? So I guess, I and I hate to say it, Alex, but like what were the myths you had to overcome with yourself, Alexander? Like what were, did you tell yourself? What were the struggles and how did you get through them? Like, what's the self-talk that, that brings you to this kind of accomplishment? 
You know, know, and Alex, before you answer, I mean, Becky, this is a classic example of imposter syndrome, right? Here is Alex who's upset about something she's seeing in the world. And literally she's now going, well, I'm going to change the law, the the federal or whatever you call that in Quebec, right? (laughs) I mean, how did you, uh, this, I love Becky's question. I mean, like, so how did you overcome that internal dialogue that says, not you, Alex, you're no government lobbyist. You don't know expert. I mean, how did you overcome that? Oh, God. And you know what, that that was the biggest challenge of everything, surprisingly, is overcoming my own self, right, if that right. makes any sense. And I think, you know, as technicians, we don't really have, at least in Canada, and I mean, it's changing now, of course, but um, I grew up in a time where we weren't necessarily encouraged to use our voices or open up or advocate for animal welfare and um, I mean, even things like going to conferences, like in the last few years, this was a, a new thing to me. Um, and things are changing, but it does contribute to that feeling of imposter syndrome and, well, who are you to do this? And I think the scariest thing was that uh, I had no marketing budget. So when I'm reaching out to the public, I really had to put myself out there on social media. And that scared the living wits out of me. <laughs> okay, wait, let me back up just a second because you said yeah. I had no marketing budget. Already you've lost half the people. It was like, what do you mean a marketing budget? Uh, okay, so so again, you're in clinics, you're observing these cats, you have this, this really tragic case, right, with this young couple, but what was the next step you took? So I actually wrote a letter to the Professional Order of Veterinarians in Quebec. And I had essentially explained what I was seeing and... Uh, I looked over all of the relevant data on the subject, uh, and there's a lot, uh, and it unanimously points in the direction that this is harmful to the animal. Um, So I wrote to them saying, listen, uh, we're not doing our animals any favors uh, by continuing this practice. What can we do about it? Um, And essentially their stance was uh, they, they don't have any legislative power. Uh, even though they regulate uh, the practice of veterinary medicine in Quebec. Right. But they they also don't necessarily want to tell veterinarians how to practice medicine. Right, right. Which was another key point I thought about when I responded to them, which I'll get into later. Um, and the response, however, I felt it was a little bit lackluster, and I felt like I was getting brushed off a little bit. Um, in all, I'm just being honest about this. Ah, Becky might be able to relate to that. Huh, Becky? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear about that. Um, so I, I kind of pushed further and I was like, you know what? I, that <laughs> by feeling brushed off, I thought it was a little bit rude. So I did some digging and, uh, I actually pulled out their budget, which is public information, a little bit hard to find. And, I kind of gave it back to them and I was like, listen, it's in your mission statement that it's our job or the veterinarian's job to protect animals and animal welfare and promote animal welfare. Um, Yet your budget states, you spend very little um, on this topic. So can you please like elaborate on this? I'd like to find that, find out. Good. Um, uh, I also tagged, uh, you know, a couple news sources in the email. (laughs) They did not like that. (laughs) <laughs> but it, it, it did get them to respond to me. Um, and it, it, in a way, it was almost worse because um, they had said, you know, we focus on educating clients and we make these pamphlets. 
but we will not, however, uh, help you in banning decline. Oh my God, that, what a, I was just so... Right. There are people that are doing it are saying, hey, no, we can't. <laughs> We're not. <Yeah. laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Well, and, and I, like, this is the problem to me when the people who make, <laughs> make the money make the decisions, right? And so mm-hmm. this feels like a huge roadblock because now you have to find people who are not financially invested, are emotionally invested without being emotionally uh, driven, yeah, and point. are involved in the decision making. So, like, who is that group then? What do, who who are we targeting? It, it's so hard to tease all of all of these things out. And uh, even in the order, though, I do know that there is some vets that are on the board that adamantly just they're constantly uh, saying, you know, we need to get rid of this. Like, it right. is our responsibility. But for some reason, they're being blocked. Um, so in this case, uh, I actually went to the government after this. I'm like, well, you have no legislative power, so uh, let's see what the, the ministry has to say about it. Um, and I called the ministry, and I actually, this, <laughs> this is how I delved into animal law, um, because in Quebec, uh, in 2015, they recognized animals as sentient beings, not as objects, as they were previously uh, denoted under law. So sentient beings do have protection laws around them. And so I kind of delved into that a little bit. And I I called the ministry and I said, hey, I think there's some contradiction going on. Um, Sentient beings have certain rights, but there's there's this exemption clause under veterinarian acts where sentient beings don't actually have as many rights as you think they do. Um, And under law, it's called... uh, you know, they're exempted under generally recognized rules. So I was like, okay, what are these rules? This is very vague and I don't understand. And they said, well, the rules are actually up to the OMVQ or the Order of Veterinarians. They make the rules and then we put it into law. So I was like, okay, I go back to the order and I say, listen, can we talk about this? And they said, look, you know, you got to go with the the ministry. It really is up to them. And so it just, you know, they were bouncing the ball back and forth. so when I called the ministry back, I said, look, I want to change this. This is wrong. We all know this is wrong. This is, uh, we have all of the evidence to back, back this up that, you know, you could view this uh, as an act of animal cruelty. And it, it sounds intense, but when you look at the data, I mean, it's really uh, glaringly obvious. So um, I said, look, I want to change the law. How do I do that? And it was interesting because it was actually an animal health technician I was speaking to on the phone that works in the ministry. And she said, uh, look, I'm with you. However, the reason it's like this is because under law, you can say, well, the animal's under anesthesia, so they're not feeling pain. That's kind of how it uh, was, you know, still allowed. But if you want to change it, you know, you can do, you know, talk to your member of National Assembly and see what they say. So even in then, I had to take a bit of a chance. Right. Okay. So so again, I love this viewfinders because again, she saw something she wanted changed. She reached out to the veterinary organization who was actually doing this, didn't get the answers that she wanted, started to include the media that got a little bit more attention, but still brushed off and then said, okay, if you guys don't make the rules and regulations, who does? That's the government. So she starts a conversation with them. 
She finds some loopholes. I mean, Alex, this is remarkable because honestly, this is really just a matter of bringing this issue to the forefront of important people's minds as far as I'm hearing this. Yeah, exactly. So what, what was your reception? So now you mentioned that you're talking to an animal health technician within the ministry, but were other government officials supportive? Were they sympathetic to this? So this is where it gets pretty cool because uh, when I uh, approached my member of National Assembly, uh, I kind of wrote up this like, document for her, this letter, this heartfelt letter with all of my evidence. And I said, the, you know, statistically, I'm, unfortunately, we don't have statistics on decline, but a ballpark estimate in most places is about 25% of cats are declawed, uh, which in Quebec translates to 500,000 cats. Uh, like, that's not nothing. And I said, look, you know, we, got, we really have to do something about this. This is really important to me. Uh, interestingly enough, the area that this person represents uh, in the city of Montreal, we are known to be very animal friendly. We have the highest concentration of vet clinics um, per capita. So I couldn't be physically in a better place to do this also. Yeah. Um, so when I reached out to her immediately, she responded to me and she's like, I'm in, let's do this. She's like, I worked on puppy mill cases 10 years ago. Like, let's get this going. We're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's an easy one. Public sentiment is going to get behind this, right? I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of win-wins for everybody. And yeah, Becky, I, I love that you mentioned earlier about the financial interest, right? And getting those people that are re- at least one step removed from the money. And I think that's important in this particular instance, because you know, now you can start to see, okay, look, we're really making this about welfare, about what's morally just, in my opinion. And the, uh, Becky, there's really not gazillions of dollars you know, that you're going to lose, right? <laughs> I, You know, though, it, uh, I always like to go back to my story <laughs> of $18 versus 20. And, and, and the, the idea that when we look at it as a whole number, our veterinarians or our, our financial brains, I should say, you know, regardless of your credential or background, can sometimes do flip-flopping things. And I think we are very fear-based, at least in the U.S., of change and of of taking away services and the potential to lose clients because of it. The fear that if we say, no, I'm not going to do that, they'll find somewhere else to go, somewhere else that will. And, right, and right. I think most of us as veterinary professionals have even heard people threaten to do certain things on their own should we not provide whatever service. And so... Um, I know that to me, like these are illogical arguments, but they're still ones that we hear. When it comes to the the declaw conversation specifically, I was talking last week with a friend and I was sort of talking about this generation of us that have gone from, yes, we do it routinely. We, we don't think twice. It's part of our career to like, okay, well now there's sort of medical necessity. And what if it means the cat's going to get abandoned? And we know cats go into shelters and they end up euthanized. So wouldn't it be better to just quick do this so they get a home to actually seeing it banned? So I think that this emotional, physical, mental arch that we have covered over time still has a community of people within it who have ethical struggles because they have performed these types of procedures and they they have to reckon with that right I don't think that any of us that have participated in a, in a declaw like think back and think oh I tortured that cat to boy what did I do I feel so horrible but it's like man I'm really glad I don't do that anymore exactly. so I guess to you Alexander my my question is sort of in at least well in Canada how does that mirror to the U.S. right because that's what our trajectory has looked like but 
how much of those people are it, it, is there that span or are people really still we need to be doing this is this justified because of medical or behavioral necessity does it look the same as the u.s like so what did that look like throughout that journey so this is a, a really interesting point and uh a lot of the so first of all, in regards to the public perception of it, um, again, and I think this is similar to what happened in New York, uh, it, it felt like a public campaign. Uh, the public seemed to be all for it. It was extremely positive. Um, and in terms of how this was shaped um, or presented to the public and the articles I wrote, for example, there, I did not want this to be about shaming veterinarians at all. Uh, that wasn't on the on the topic of discussion this was about this is this really amazing positive thing that we can do to make a difference in the animals lives and live in a better place um I've, a lot of the pushback that i did get from the veterinary community was exactly as you described well what if i if i don't declaw this cat their their owners will give them up to a shelter and they're euthanized and you're like, okay, wait a minute, Let, let's unpack this. Because we actually now have evidence uh, to say that this is not true. And this was one of those serendipitous moments where uh, a month before the petition came out, uh, there was this amazing study from a Quebec veterinarian out of BC. Uh, so British Columbia banned it years ago. And they actually collected data on uh, shelter medicine after they had banned decline to see, okay, are animals actually euthanized for this reason? Are there going to be less abandonments? Um, in a nutshell, what they found was that less people were giving up their animals to shelters. Less, There were less owner-elected euthanasias for these reasons. So it seems to turn out that the more protection laws you have for animals, the more respect they get. And so that was really interesting. Um, the other interesting thing, I think, is an issue of perspective. So let's see you, we, you know, we think if we declaw cat, they're going to end up in a shelter. What are the top two reasons people give up their cats to shelters? Number one, going outside of the litter box. And number two, aggression issues. The top two most common consequences of decline are going outside of the litter box and aggression <laughs> right. issues. <laughs> right, right. So let's really, you know, I think we have so many biases in our own opinions that we have to be careful of. So whenever I did have that argument, it's like, let's, let's face this. Let's actually unpack this because when you do that, it can look a lot different. Yeah. And I love that the veterinarian, I think that you're referring to is a frequent guest of the show, Dr. Margie Shirk. And so she, uh, with the, you know, paw project and all those different things she's done to help it get banned and, and, provinces of Canada. But, you know, she talks about, Alexandra, the relinquishment myth. And, and again, the studies just don't back it up. And so you're right, sometimes a little bit of data. And, and you know, Becky, as I'm, I'm listening to this, it's always these anecdotes, right? It's always these like, well, if I do this, then this will happen. And it's like, well, the data shows the exact opposite is true. I think about, though, how simple titles on social media are the catchphrase, the clickability, the memorability, right? And that is, it's an easy message to cling to, to hear, to believe, to not, who wants to dive into the research on, you know, amputations of single digits in feline medicine, right? Like no one's looking for those studies. They're just like, oh, this equals this. And it becomes very believable. It's said with confidence and it's spread like wildfire. And there's so much of that in our industry and just across 
cool, you know, I don't want to say fact share, information sharing in general. So I think it is really about how do you get the the logic behind these nonsensical statements that have so much, um, uh, they're, they're just so easy to cling to. I love it. So Alex, now, now at, we're up to the point in your story, in this journey, if you will, where, okay, you've gotten some now buy-in or support from your government officials, but now you've got to get the public behind it. You've mentioned a couple of times you wrote articles and so forth. So how did the public campaign, which is again going to then link back to the government support and then voting, how did that happen? So you've got support internally, but how did you get broader public buy-in? So this was really interesting um, because... In some ways, uh, it almost started with the technicians. And while we're talking about this, um, I I do have to mention some stories. And I think for any technicians listening, this is going to be really uh, hopefully inspiring to them. Um, Technicians all over the province were contacting me as soon as they found out about this. And they were telling me these stories. Like one uh, technician said uh, her hospital was, you know, like many, severely understaffed. They had two technicians left and uh, they saw a decline procedure on the schedule. And it was actually the technicians who spoke up and said, I refuse to do this. I'm not participating in this. Uh, If this is happening, then I'm leaving the hospital. And they really put their foot down. um, And the, so the hospital stopped doing it. Um, And then, yeah. And then uh, another technician Uh, She actually did a cost breakdown of, uh, okay, how is this going to affect the bottom line of the hospital or revenue um, if we continue to do this? Because she's like, well, bandages are really expensive, you know, little things add up. And she found that uh, it didn't really affect the hospital, whether they did them or not. So there's no, there's not even a financial incentive for it either. Um, And so I, I think these stories are so important because I never hear about them. And so to, to have them reach out to me um, and get really excited that, okay, we're, we're all taking this stance and we're kind of doing it separately. Let, let's kind of connect to this. Um, and it was through the, these sort of grassroots momentum through technicians that were reaching out on social media to their friends. Um, and it, it kind of created this, this, you know, rolling momentum. So I, in order to get to the public, I started writing uh, opinion pieces in newspapers. Um, This seemed for them kind of like a hot topic. So the language I used was a little bit strong in the sense that I had to think about, you know, the likelihood of it even getting published without calling out the veterinary industry. So one thing I talked about, for example, was that decline is really a misnomer. It's actually a partial digital amputation. Amputation, right, right. And yet we need to refer to it that way. And this is still happening in Quebec. Um, But again, I framed it in a way that kind of said, but we have an opportunity to change it. I think everybody listening today is, we're all on on the same boat, right? We're all rowing in the same direction. Having said that, did you receive some personal negative consequences, right? Because I think that's where everybody stops. They go, wait, wait, you mean I have to put my name on it? I have to like publish this? I have to go out publicly? Did you have any negative you know, consequences? And if so, how did you deal with that? Oh, yeah. Um, well, it, it was already nerve wracking for me to do this uh, publicly uh, because of you know, the imposter syndrome. And well, I'm just a technician. Right. Who am I to do this? Then um, I had 
some confrontations with veterinarians who essentially were saying, well, you, you can't dictate how I practice medicine. Who are you to do this? And so it was really my fear embodied <laughs> and coming to life and me having to face that. Um, and all I wanted to do was crawl under a rock. <laughs> but I kept thinking about, you know, the cats. And it, it seems like at this point, I'm the only one defending them. So I kind of stood my ground and said, you know, again, if, if you want to make a claim like that, let's actually talk about it. Like, let's have this conversation because that's what's missing in the profession. We're not talking about it because people are afraid of, you know, difficult topics. And so my argument in that sense was, it's not medicine. Deep clawing is not medicine. Um, it does no benefit to the animal at all. So are, are you, are we healing an animal? Um, the other issue that I had, and this one actually got a little bit scary, was... Um, so in the petition, I, I also ended up including ear cropping, tail docking, and devocalization surgeries. Right, right. good, good. Um, oh, man. Some of the uh, breeders, uh, obviously not the well-regulated ones, uh, but they were stalking me on Facebook. Uh, they were trying to find out where I worked. Um, they were telling me that I was going to have blood on my hands and that everything that I was doing was horrible and they're going to come to my clinic and talk to the owners about this and... Um, kind of threatening me. Did they? Did they have any reason why? I mean, I'm curious because I feel <laughs> you're like you're actually the money, Becky, it's taking money. the blood off of your hands quite literally. <laughs> I, I'm very confused by these blood statements. Blood money, blood money. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, essentially they said that um, you know tail docking can be healthy for the animal. And oh, that if we ban <laughs> that if we ban it, then people are just going to go, you know, and do it in their house with a pair of scissors. So I, I think that this is an important point, right? Because I was interviewing um, new veterinary technicians to come on board um, with my veterinary tech pr- technician program at Gurnick Academy. For more information, <laughs> GurnickAcademy.edu. Um, but no, seriously, I was and I, and I brought this question to them because I was like, you know, what would you do as your students encounter these situations? And I think the thing is, is that you're absolutely right. There is medical necessity for tail docking. I, too, have participated in tail docking situations where a dog has half chewed their own tail off, where there's constant repeat injury, X, Y, and Z. So I think the idea that you're saying, oh, to me, it's like, I'm so glad you are educated on the medical necessity of this procedure and therefore could understand the difference between cosmetic and medical necessity. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I mean right? Like, yeah, exactly. The point it, is, is there is medical necessity for these procedures, and that is not what we're talking right. about. Exactly. They're non therapeutic, they're non preventive. I mean, you know, you, you nailed it, Alex, in, in the, I think, in the, the legislation for sure. Okay. So, so again, as we kind of end, end up near the end of today's conversation, because we could go on and on. And again, I think viewfinders, what we're trying to lay out for you guys, no matter what change you'd like to see, this is a masterclass in how to get it done. I mean, I can't thank Alex enough for, for spending time with us today. But okay, so now you're at the point where you're writing these op-eds and you've got some support here and there, but you've also got some negative detractors around there. What happened next? Oh, so this was really cool. Um, this was one of my favorite moments. Um, so the whole veterinary industry, aside from a small portion who didn't agree with it, we all came together in the province and everybody was just so excited that this was going to happen and they were you know resharing articles we have some 
Quebec sort of veterinary celebrities here who were going on television talking about this to raise awareness. Um, it, we really, as an industry, as soon as this hit the table, we all championed it. And it was amazing to see because it was almost as if, you know, we had been through the ringer during COVID and we needed this win. So it was as if everybody was treating it like, um, you know, this thing to champion. And we had been talking about it for so long, but we hadn't been able to, to accomplish anything yet. So to see the feline behaviorists, the surgical specialists, they were all over social media, um, spreading the word and getting public involvement and educating people about it. Um, so once it hit the public realm, it was almost the entire industry. Um, the other cool thing we did, and this is more of a practical approach, uh, if anybody wants to do this, is that um, I had made, uh, we had printed, there, there's actually a veterinarian who is now a marketing specialist, and she's like, oh, you know what, this is going to be a genius idea. Let's take the petition link, and we're going to put it in a QR code so clinics can print it and put it up in their reception area in the clinics. So all people have to do is take a picture of it with their phone, and it'll take them to directly to the link where they can sign and um clinics all over the province were taking photos of the whole veterinary staff uh kind of doing like a selfie with the qr code in their hospital as if to say they're like a proud representative to like support this cause um and then that kind of went viral locally as much as it could so it was just it's just amazing to see and, and then the, the government made a vote on it. Is that what happened next? So legislation's proposed, it's accepted. So um, at this point, it was nearing the end of the petition. And I said, you know what? Like I promised myself, I'm putting my all into this. And I wrote an open letter to the government, which is a letter that's directed to a public figure, but it's uh, presented publicly. And so as a you know, last ditch effort, uh, I wrote to the ministry as well as the premier of Quebec explaining the situation, saying that, you know, veterinary order can't legislate. We need your help to do this. I don't want to live in a world that does this to animals. And I know we all want to be on the right side of history. So let's get this done, essentially. And uh, it it seemed to have got to them because they called me the next day. (laughs) And they said, listen, listen, we're going to do this. We still have a few more weeks of the petition, but just just so you know, ahead of time, like, you know, we're with you on this. We're doing it. So I, uh, in the end, we ended up with a little over 20,000 signatures uh, in the province of Quebec, which is pretty substantial considering our size and (laughs) lack of marketing budget. This is all done on social media uh, and a little bit in the paper. Um, so a month after it was officially submitted and read in the legislative chambers, which is really cool to see, uh, you know, animal rights being spoken in those chambers, um, uh, about a month later, the official response came and the minister said, yes, uh, unless medically necessary, we're banning non-therapeutic and non-preventive surgeries, uh, decline, ear cropping, tail docking and devocalization. Wow. What an amazing story. Viewfinders, I can't. <laughs> I can't thank Alex enough for sharing this. So Alex, again, we're, a lot of our listeners are fighting their own battles, whether it's social justice, uh, LBGTQ, whether it's animal welfare issues, whether it's workplace rights. I mean, you know, what's that last little snippet of advice you'd give for somebody struggling to try to make some change in their world? Sometimes you just have to, you really have to bite the bullet and take something that you believe in enough and, and 
do everything you can to make it happen. Dedicate, try a month, dedicate yourself to it for one month and just see what happens. I love that. Alexandra Yaksich. She is an animal health technician, which is basically just the same thing as a veterinary technician here in the United States. She is an advocate for animal welfare. She's a freelance journalist. She does amazing work. I will include some links in the show notes. Uh, Alex, again, just thank you so much, not only for the change you've done to benefit the lives of millions and millions of cats, but also in trying to help our profession move forward. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, viewfinders, what do you think about this discussion? What's what's the change you'd like to see in your world? Have you tried things and have you seen success? If not, where could we make it better? Again, I think by collectively coming together, pooling our resources, we can do great things just like Alex did there in Quebec. So I really want to hear your stories and maybe even better ideas. I mean, Alex is a listener. She heard some stuff and said, hey, you know what? I'd like to share my story. So if you've got a story you'd like to share, don't hesitate to drop it to us. Becky, how can they contact us with their amazing stories? Well, you guys know where to find us. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder, on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder, and you can email like Alexandra did at Veterinary Viewfinder at gmail.com. That's right, guys. Go make some change. Until next week, we will talk to you. Bye. Bye. Bye.